Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Welcome to episode 38 of the Build My Lunch podcast. I'm your host, Terry. And this week, I've got Dave Jennings from Planet 13, where he's going to talk about their e-commerce store, which sells the largest range of rock, punk, metal, and goth merchandise online in Australia. Their products include t-shirts, hoodies, shoes, patches, belts, and much more, and they've been in business since the early 2000s. So you'll hear his story in running the online and offline operations of the business in Australia. But before we start, we have an online workshop this Thursday, March 21st in the evening US time, 7 p.m. Pacific. It'll be an SEO webinar going over keyword research, competitor analysis, and some general search engine optimization uh, tips and tricks with David Heekenberger from episode 34. So if you're struggling with the SEO side of things, whether you're new or having troubles understanding the terminologies, or you've been in business for a while, but you're not ranking as well as you'd like in the search engines, uh, sign up at buildmyonlinestore.com slash SEO webinar to join me and let us help you out. And if you're listening to this in the future, join the VIP mailing list to get more information on how to get their replays. So, and I also want to give a shout out to Jeremy Byron over at honestoffice.com. We've been emailing back and forth about his feedback on the podcast this past week and kind of on some things that he likes and he doesn't like or would like to see improved. And I just want to throw it out there, let everyone know that I'm happy to hear feedback, whether it's good or bad. And the way I see negative feedback is that it gives me an opportunity to fill in the gaps in the show. And so when new listeners find out and I improve upon it, it's a much better product that's presented to them. So uh, with that being said, you can let me know via Twitter at it's me, Terry Lynn, or or you can shoot me an email, terry at buildmyonlinestore.com. And so uh, with that being said, uh, let's get into this week's episode. All right, thanks for coming on the show, David. So let's just jump right into this. Uh, could you give us a quick background on how Planet 13 got started? Well, appreciate you having me on the show. Um, I actually was working in a supermarket and uh, some one of the guys I was working with happened to own a clothing store on Bridge Road, which was uh, not too far from where he was working. And um, it, he'd always had it in his mind that um, he wanted to run this uh, clothing store without him working in it. Um, so you could follow the, you know, Michael Gerber, work on your business rather than in it. So he literally was working in a supermarket to help pay for the wages for the, the staff that was working in the store. So it was um, a, a rock and roll clothing music store. That's what Planet 13 uh, was all about and uh, selling rock and metal and punk clothing and different things at the time. I mean, it was um, sort of early 2000s and the clothing store itself, because of the business partners that I was involved in, one of them was from the States and we had some really good connections. So we were able to uh, get some merchandise and stock that just people weren't seeing here. And my, my business partners were very much in the scene. Um, so we created a, a fantastic store, I think like none other, and it became a little bit of a, a destinational-based store. That's kind of how it all started. Um, he sort of got that up and running, and we were good friends while we were working at the supermarket. And when they had headed over to the States, they asked for some help to sort of just keep an eye on it and make sure everything sort of ran smoothly. And when they came back, that's when we sort of sat down and, 
um, talked about longer term, what was the vision for the business and, and where did we want to take it, what steps and if I wanted to be involved in that. And they had a real clear vision of they wanted to create a, a store that I really shaped an industry, I suppose, here in Australia. Um, there wasn't anything quite like it at the time. We wanted to, there's a, a, a store called Surf, Dive and Ski, which is like a, a surf store, obviously, you can tell by the name. We wanted to be the, the surf, dive and ski of the music industry. So we kind of came up with this this idea and, and this, this model of the way that the store would look and the thought, right, we really want to try and get this into shopping centres. And a lot of the, the stores in our scene weren't very parent-friendly. Uh, so, I mean, you, you'd probably worry about sending your kids into some of the stores because of all of the, you know, drug paraphernalia and uh, obscenities written across T-shirts and things like that. So we knew we needed to, um, especially to get into the shopping centres, we needed to uh, make sure that first and foremost we obviously appealed to uh, the kids. That was our main sort of target market. Uh, But then also we could appeal to the parents as well and they'd feel safe sending their kids in. So that was always a little bit of a balance. And, you know, as we sort of rolled this thing out, when we'd opened up a few stores, um, we really recognised the online component uh, is, is a really big opportunity. I mean, my my past at the, the time, obviously I was working in the supermarket and sort of I started getting interested in a few different things at that point in time, starting off with self-development niche and then um, that kind of progressed to some of the old school direct marketers like your Dan Kennedys and Jay Abrahams and then that kind of evolved into uh, the internet marketing realm and that's where I kind of picked up my internet marketing skills while we were building these stores up. And then we thought not very many people were sort of e-commerce wasn't in front and centre at that point in time. And I thought um, we saw that as a really good opportunity. We had a little store and then I took everything that I was learning over on the side in some other business projects that I was sort of involved in and really just sort of started to feed it back to what we were doing for the Planet 13 store. So we've had that store up in a well over for seven years now with um, been doing e-com. Uh, so this is, so originally it started offline and then you guys went online or uh, am I getting this right? Or Yeah, that's right. So we had uh, started off with a phys- one physical store and then we opened the second physical store um, out in a shopping center and then we opened the third physical store as a franchise. Um, we franchised it um, and had it in that flat bang Melbourne CBD. Very much started offline and we already had, you know, all of the stock lines. We knew what we're selling. We're very clear on the target market. After that, obviously, we just were looking for other channels and other ways to get our products out there and online was sort of starting to emerge and we were, we were lucky to be, I suppose, at the front of that wave. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember as a kid going to record stores, listening to like, say, like Pennywise or some 41, kind of like the early 2000s and yeah. you'd actually go there with friends and wait for the CD to come out and kind of hang out there but now you know obviously we know what happens with that industry yeah i mean uh, that same sort of uh, era for me i was sort of heading to vans warped and i uh, was a skater from way back when listening to all, all of that sort of skate punk rock music um uh, everything from your bad religion to your gutter mouth and um everything in between so um i was very much interested in the space as well. I mean, my business partners were really into the scene, you know, musos and themselves and um, really understood our target target market incredibly well. And just, you know, that was when I was uncovering my entrepreneurial sort of streak and um, my love for business. 
um, sort of that was just starting, so we kind of fit really well. They kind of brought a lot of that scene knowledge, and then I sort of started to feed over um, a lot of the business stuff. Yeah, it's funny because uh, it's like you know how when you're a skateboarder, you can't talk to rollerbladers back then, and like <laughs> yeah, this ru- silly rivalry. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I used to be a skateboarder too. Yeah, even now when I see a, a rollerblader go by, I still have a little chuckle to myself, and I think there's a, a few uh, well-known. Uh, internet marketers here in Australia who uh, are rollerbladers, and uh, I have to bite my tongue and not say any any uh, rollerblader jokes or yeah. anything like that. <laughs> yeah, so you brought up something that was interesting is that you knew the target market really well, and I think that's something a lot of business owners or entrepreneurs miss now. So how did that help you guys starting out the online part at first? Um, the first thing, as you're sort of going through the entrepreneurial journey, one of the first things that you need to do is get uh, a minimum viable product together, something that is least amount of work um, that you can do that still gives you an opportunity to test your concept or your product or your service, um, test the smallest amount that still gives you the greatest opportunity of success. So, I mean, when, when we opened up the store in, in the city and we were looking to roll out our stores um, as uh, um, friends, we thought, right, let's let's open up this store right slap bang in the middle of the city because we knew if, if, if we couldn't make it work there, then something was fundamentally uh, wrong with the model. Um, so we thought, right, let's test it there before sort of rolling it out. Um, and, and understanding the target market just um, enables you to make sure that you're picking those uh, product lines uh, and giving yourself the best chance of success because, I mean, ultimately – what we were trying to do is is have um, a, a product that our target market really wanted and they saw value in it and, and we were able to, you know, package it all up and put it um, in a nice uh, space and environment for them to um, purchase it as well. So it was understanding that target market really drove everything from the branding to getting that, that product um, to a point where we go, yep, yeah, let's let's start selling this. So I think getting into that mind is 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 really key. One of the best ways to do that at the start, I, I know everybody talks about finding that target first. The tar- it's a good idea to find your target market first, and then find out what are some of their problems and issues and things that they need solved, and then you can look for uh, products to help solve those problems that they're having. And and for us. Um, my business partners very much were they they were in the scene, so it's almost like they we were kind of building a store and and building an online presence uh, for for ourselves. Um, there wasn't, I mean, sure we were in it to make money. Um, and, I mean, that's business is making money, but it was also about building something that that we would enjoy uh, as a place to get different products and things that typically you couldn't just get from here. I know the landscape's changed a little bit, but when we first launched that online store and a lot of the um, online e-com stuff still hadn't quite taken off, a lot of people weren't entering their um, credit card details online um, and, and feeling comfortable to purchase product from overseas. Uh, so what we were able to do is with the connections in the States, we were getting uh, product that people just weren't seeing here and then we could get it shipped over and then we were listing it locally and people were much more comfortable to buy from somewhere here in Australia than, than buying from other com- companies overseas. Obviously, that, that mindset has definitely changed. I mean, everybody, Amazon's probably paid, played a really big part in that because we're you know, everybody's comfortable for purchasing books and things like that from a company on the other side of the world. 
Yeah, exactly. So you talked about MVP as a store and kind of like downtown Sydney and a shopping center. Uh, you know, what what other MVP processes did you go through? Did you do one like online? Did you do like a test auction on eBay or what other things did you guys try besides the offline store? Yeah, yeah. So we did do, we actually, I think, I'm trying to remember which came first, the chicken or the egg. If it was us doing eBay or if it was the store, it might have happened around the same time. Um, but there was a period there because e- eBay, like the, we didn't have too much competition there. So it's a really good way um, to test products quickly, find out which ones were selling really well. And then because eBay already had the audience um, and then you kind of like uh, double down. I mean, it's all about put a few feelers out there to see what was working. And then one, once more, once we knew what was working, we really focused in on those particular product lines. But licensed merch is really good to get people in through the front door. It's like having some recognizable brands. But then once someone sort of gets in through that front door, uh, where you really make a lot of your margin was, was with other products that, that might not be as licensed, you know, things that you might have manufactured. You know, we did some um, importing from uh, China and we did some belt buckles and belts and things like that. Uh, and then after we kind of tested small with some of those products and go, oh, they, these are working really well in, in, let's say, the licensed merch and we've got the per- people in the front door, then that's when we sort of started to look for other products that we could sell that would have better margin in it. As far as like what are some things that we did for um, the minimum viable product, um, I, I think uh, firstly when actually setting up the web store as well, uh, it's, it's always a work in progress. I think the best thing that someone can do is just get that web store up online, list a few products, try and either get some traffic to it or, or just get started because the, you, you might go across some of these sites that have been online for 10 years or five years or even a few years and they've progressively gotten better and better and better through these iterations. But if you look at probably the very first version of their their website, it's probably really, really average and it's just they keep on improving it as they go. So you need to try and get into the mindset of uh, how do we just get something up online and get some people in front of it and then you kind of get the feedback from them, whether it's what are they searching on your website, you know, when they type things into the search box that gives you some feedback there, what are they actually buying, that's more feedback. If you want, you can look at some surveys or even one thing that we, we would do is is um, when we had the stores and, and I mean, we, it's just a bit of competitive intelligence is, is asking what your um, – your clients and your prospects are looking for. So we'd ask them, is there any things that you've been looking for that you haven't been able to find that you want us to get? And we were doing that in the store. Um, we didn't do it as, as much online, but in interacting with them, I think that's really the best way to do it. Just test out a few things, um, try and get it online as quick as possible. Don't try and make it perfect um, and just know that each successive revision the website's just going to get better and better and better yeah that's something interesting i've noticed like some businesses that have started offline and online uh, because offline you get that customer feedback loop going and that you could just immediately put onto your website whereas kind of if you just started online you need like your analytics and you kind of have to guesstimate like what they're looking for based on like heat maps stuff like that too so it's kind of interesting that you bring that up one of the the best ways for insight and and i still haven't heard too many people talk about this but um, we, we talked about this at um, one of the workshops that we ran a, 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 while, a long time ago, many years ago, um, was this idea of using the search on your website. So obviously I, I think um, Google 
uh, analytics for Google Search now has a, has a product where you can install Google Search on your site and then you can basically log and see what people are typing into search. We did it through custom coding, but uh, what we did was we, we basically got our, our web search on, on the, or, or got our search on the actual site and then we were tracking all of the different searches and then what we would do is we'd clump them together so that way, you know, all of the a particular band name or something like that, all of the those, if it was the same band, would get grouped together. So we could have a look each month and go, oh, okay, so we had um, 150 people type in Metallica T's or Metallica or something like that. And then that gave us some really good insight as to what bands were breaking and things like that. And we would feed that data then back into the website itself. So we would then, we created this script where, Basically, what we do is for the featured products on the home page, the featured products, we don't actually change those manually. The search drives that. So um, what, what that does is kids, uh, as a band is breaking, kids know that before a band is breaking or before they're about to tour or come out with an album, they're out there searching on different websites. They're almost like a leading indicator. And seeing that typed into the, the site and then we feed that back where so now we start showing Blink-182 patches and stickers and products on the homepage. We're using that data to feed back onto the website and then it sort of reinforces that, you know, we really are on that cutting edge. Um, and I mean, my business partner is a bit of a, a genius when it comes to the music scene and, and picking that stuff. So, I mean, he gives a lot of influence with that, but just that one thing alone uh, gives us great insight. We can have a look in those top searches and then know what's what's happening by just getting the data from the website. That was a really big one for us. Yeah, interesting that you can use. And do you guys use a custom search bar or do you use the Google one? Well, right when we set up the website, that's going back, um, you know, more than seven years now where there wasn't, there was no Magento at that point in time. There was no big commerce. There were no out-of-the-box things. And I'd been learning a lot of stuff. I think Yahoo Stores was pretty big at that point in time. But I'd been learning a lot of internet marketing things at that point in time and, and uh, testing with some other businesses as well. So I, I couldn't find anything that would achieve what it was that I wanted it to do. And then not only that, I had really good background with um, uh, SEO. So I had a lot of real custom things that I wanted to do. So we actually designed this whole thing from the ground up. I uh, found a coder over in Slovakia and um, worked with him over a period of, you know, or many years in the end, but, you know, it took us a good sort of three, four months to basically write this thing from scratch. Prior to that, we had a real basic HTML uh, website that was hand-coded page by page. Then that was kind of when we only had a few product lines. But on that second version, we, we did it from the ground up. So we had the um, SEO built into it. We had the custom search built into it. We we pretty much did everything. So one of the trends that's happened since then is that uh, digital and like iTunes has really kind of taken the CD market out. And so I guess bands are making more money uh, by going on tours and doing live events. And do you see that helping out the merchandise yeah. Uh, area? Yeah, well, I mean, we all know that music industry has been hit really hard. I think it was Steve Jobs had mentioned when, when iTunes came out, that whole idea of if there was an easy way for people to do the right thing and buy it, it's just that CDs were antiquated. But if they do have that opportunity and it, you know, it makes 
sense, like it doesn't cost an arm and a leg, then people are most likely going to do the right thing. Kids and, and people who, who love the scene, they, like, they do like supporting the, the music scene. So I think merchandise has always sort of remained strong and I think it will continue to remain strong. Even merchandise, people do bootleg men- merchandise, but that's a big thing. Uh, that we really push hard for Planet 13 is that we're supporting the scene. We're not stealing money from artists. You should be buying licensed merchandise. And, and there's a bit of an education process as well. It's part of our autoresponder sequence and we kind of have it on, on the site as well and we reinforce the importance of making sure that you give back to the artist because if the artist can't, won't get paid for what they're doing, they'll stop making music and then, you know, we all lose out. So it's, there's a little bit of that re-education. I don't think I've noticed a massive boom or anything like that in merchandise as we've watched the the sales of the music industry sort of slip away, at least with traditional CD sales and things like that. I've not noticed a boom as a result of that, but definitely noticing a lot of bands now rely on merchandise and touring to try and make up for that shortfall. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of also the thing where... Uh, some people want to find a band before they get really famous too. Yeah, I saw this really cool thing uh, the other day. It was a, a presentation on TED at TED.com. They do those those talks and there was, I can't remember her name, it's like Amanda Palmer or something like that. She's an artist and uh, she was talking about how she's gone away from traditional record labels and uh, she did a, a crowd-funded next album and, you know, they, they weren't expecting it to go nearly as big as it did, I think she ended up, they ended up raising like $1.2 million through crowdfunding to help fund um, the creation of their next album. And it's just interesting to watch to see the way that that industry is changing. And because now there's so many, there's an outlet there for so many artists to be heard, it's just how do you get above that noise? You're kind of, like you said, you want to be able to pick those bands as they're breaking. I mean, that's the the holy grail and that's kind of what music labels used to do music labels and, and their buyers would be spotting these breaking bands and they'd try and catch them right at the front of the wave and then they'd do the deal just before they get really really big they're in a better negotiating position and then they try and get as much out of the the artist as they can and and then kind of ride that wave and help push them as well but they're kind of it's ha- it's spotting those trends just as they're breaking out um, but oftentimes, the earlier you try and spot a trend as it's breaking out, the more false signals you get. So the the earlier you try and get a band as they're breaking, um, if you you know, depending on how early in that curve you're going, the, the you're increasing the chance of getting it wrong. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, in VCs in some ways, right, where they invest in like thirty different companies and then try to make sure one of them makes makes a big hit. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same. I mean, referenced a couple of times some other things and businesses that I was involved in uh, on the side as we were building up and doing the Planet 13 stuff. I was very much um, uh, into the stock market and um, came out with some stock market education products and that whole idea of spotting trends and seeing things as they break out. And the, the, the VC world definitely fascinates me. It's something that um, I, can, I can imagine moving into it one one day. Yeah, like the technical analysis, all of that stuff. And- yeah, yeah, spotting, spotting the trends and things like that. I mean, I'm starting to see so many different similarities in a whole lot of different areas. Like if someone's listening to this and they're thinking about what, what business um, should they start if they're looking to start up an e-commerce site, 
there are different industries as they're breaking out. And uh, if you can position your, your business in an industry that's kind of like on the rise, it just makes things easier for you. It's they, they say all boats float on a rising tide. If you could pick an industry that's on the way up, even if you do things poorly, uh, you can often still do okay because you're just in a rising market. And on the flip side, if you pick something, let's say that you were in the music industry and you were, you were selling records uh, or CDs, if you got that timing wrong and you were, you were starting to do that as the market's falling, even if you do it incredibly well and you, you were the best in the game and, and um, you'd, you'd still end up losing out because you're in a market that's falling so heavily. So trying to pick those markets um, can really impact the success and how easy it is to have a success. Yeah. And so what are some ways you look at trends, kind of just to go off on a different tangent here to see something that's breaking? Um, I, I'm, I'm best at spotting trends as they're breaking when I am the target market, if that makes sense, because I un- understand what's going on um, or, you know, in that space for that target market, then I can spot the opportunities. So f- for those types of hay spotting trends, I mean, it's, it's really just trying to keep an eye on uh, a particular space and then try and keep on top of the news. So everything from signing up to different RSS feeds and loading them into your RSS reader so you can stay on top of what's happening in your industry and then trying to spot things as they break. Yeah, I think for me it's just kind of being observant and knowing kind of like pick up the signals as they come and then, you know, kind of making sure you kind of keep in the back of your head and then if you keep seeing it, it's kind of something to look into. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's almost like um, setting your, what do they call it, reticulate, uh, reticulating activating system, the RAC. It's kind of like when you when you buy a red sports car, um, then you start seeing same red sports car everywhere and the question is have those red sports cars been everywhere um all all the time is it that they magically started appearing once you bought a red sports car when it's kind of like at the front of your mind you start seeing it everywhere so i think maybe even thinking about looking for opportunities if you kind of tune your mind for that like you said it's like you're constantly scanning if you're looking for opportunities then you're more likely to see opportunities yeah exactly all right so let's go back to Planet 13 a little bit. So how does licensing products work? I'm not really sure how this model works. Can you just kind of go into a little detail? Bands obviously uh, control their name. They'll, they'll license out the the right to use their, their label or their, their logo on certain merchandise. And it can be broken into different categories and things like that and also geographic regions. So if you own the, the license here in Australia, you might need a different license if you were going to try and sell it into the US. It's becoming more and more difficult to police now with the online side of things, and I think that's kind of changing a little bit. We didn't actually ever license the merchandise ourselves. We just bought, you know, partnered up with people. There's there's a couple of companies that um, we were working with that um, they kind of do deals with the bands. And then we, again, we had some ins through my business partners where, you know, we became the distributors for Australasia for this particular company. So they were mainly focused in the US and then we, we kind of took over. So we had a, a, a separate part to the business as well. It was the wholesaling arm. So um, this, that's, a, that's a really smart strategy for 
uh, e-commerce, and this is further down the track, you might start up, start up an e-commerce store and then over time as you maybe start to manufacture or you get really good, uh, if you're getting good volumes through, you can start to cut deals to um, see if you can get things at wholesale rates. Potentially, you can then become a wholesaler and having a separate part to your business. So effectively, then what you start doing is you're selling to your competitors, which is great because on certain lines, you might go and search on Google and four different websites come up all selling, you know, a particular belt or a belt buckle or something like that. And I don't really care. You know, it's great if you buy it from Planet 13 because we'll, we'll get some great margin on it. But I don't really care if you buy off some of the other ones as well because um, we're still wholesaling to that person. So it's still a sale that ends up in our bucket. From a strategy point of view, thinking longer term and and once you do get the margins and if you do look at manufacturing, but setting up a wholesaling arm, that was probably a really, really big step and a great step for us. So licensing gives you the right to say, I'm going to make a Metallica shirt, I'm just going to find my own manufacturer and I'll put the logo on there and it'll be fine. Is that right? There's no hard and fast rules. Um, like there's no book on licensing and, and they kind of just the deals just get done, you know, and they can, the, the, the conditions for those deals can vary significantly. But oftentimes they'll want to check the quality of it as well. So um, you might say, right, I, I want to license um, the Metallica logo and I want to, you know, put it on these clothing label or these clothing, clothing items. And they might want to have a look to make sure they'll obviously charge your fee for the, the right to use their name. Um, they'll approve the product and then you can sort of start selling it. But they might only give you the license to do that for, for certain products. You know, maybe it's, it's clothing or, or maybe it's, you know, just on stickers and buttons and patches and things like that. So they kind of break it up into different categories. Oh, so that's kind of done in the deal negotiation phase when you decide on what products you want to make, I guess, too, right? Yeah. And I mean, we're talking some, at least for bigger labels and things like that, we're talking big deals there. So I think someone just starting out, I, I don't, uh, you, you're going to be better off to find the, the company that's doing those deals and they're the ones manufacturing it. When, you, when you're buying any product or service, you want to get as close to the source as possible. Because obviously more and more people that jump in in the line everybody's taking their little piece and then it's reducing the margin so that, that's why you want to try and think about where is the deal actually getting made or who is the closest point to that point and you hook into there mm-hmm. oh, interesting and so you guys have been in business for a couple of years now so how many SKUs do you have now in terms of like t-shirts products and everything my, my business partners run the day-to-day but with many many thousands uh, i'm trying to think uh, at the moment i mean you I can probably do a quick look on Google here and I'll just see how many pages are indexed because even when something goes out of stock, and this is more of a an SEO thing, um, we don't actually take that off the website. Uh, we just do sold out so that way it can remain indexed, get traffic, and then when they still land there, can move them on. But, I mean, I think we've got over 8,000 products. So how do you manage all this inventory then? Is it, do you guys? I'm sure you guys have like a warehouse and warehouse staff. Or? We've got a warehouse. Obviously, a lot of it's done online. Uh, with an online database, we've obviously then matched that to the warehouse, so we can we, we know what we've got in stock, and then we've got some numbers in the way that we kind of organise it, so that way when they're in there, they can find what they're looking for. A lot of the different products, I mean, we sell a lot of stickers and patches and some smaller items as well, so uh, some of those items don't take up a huge amount of space, but then you've got some other items like, I mean, t-shirts, they still don't take up a huge amount of space. But, some of the more larger collectible type stuff. I mean, we've got some 
pretty big kiss ashtrays and incense burners and things like that, and they can take up a bit more space. I think just having having the warehouse uh, is probably the way to do it and having an online way to, to manage it. And you just got to be super attentive, like uh, very organised uh, and the attention to detail and, you know, we do regular stock takes and things like that just to make sure we stay on top of sort of the stock control. Some of the um, partners that we've got and some of the product lines that we do sell, um, there's a couple of companies here in Australia that uh, we've got a relationship with them where we're not necessarily holding all of the stock. It's almost like a little bit like a drop shipper, but it's not like they're offering drop shipping as a to everyone. It's not like a standard thing that they do, but effectively they drop ship certain lines for us as well. So that way we don't have to hold it. So let's move on to sales and marketing a little bit. So how do you guys mainly get new customers? It's kind of through word of mouth or do you guys do some paid traffic or kind of what channels do you guys use right now? Organic uh, SEO is, is a big driver that uh, was my bread and butter. I suppose that I got really fascinated with organic traffic and rankings uh, obviously, there have been significant changes over the past sort of 12 months with a lot of the different algorithm updates. Uh, that said, though, big e-commerce websites, typically also ones that have been around for a while, uh, tend to work really well in the search engines we've found. At least our, we've built up enough of a presence now where we're going, obviously, for longer tail real product buying phrases and we we do all the on-page optimization for that. So we drive a good amount of traffic through organic. Um, We stopped doing some eBay for a while there just because it got a little bit competitive, but then some people have sort of dropped out of the space and um, we found it's a good way to, you know, get that first initial sale, get people into our funnel, introduce them to what we do and then continue to make sales to them. So eBay is sort of working quite well. Um, we do do a little bit of AdWords and we do some offline stuff. I mean, there's a couple of music magazines and things like that that we've advertised in. It's kind of a, a little bit of a few things, but I'd say of the t- you know of those, I mean, SEO and probably eBay are the stronger ones. Yeah. And so how has Facebook been working out for you guys? I noticed you guys have, I guess, like 2,000-something likes and, and you guys post pretty often. Dude, does that work well or is it kind of just like a side uh, thing compared to organic SEO? A lot of people get Facebook wrong and they use it uh, heavily as a marketing channel and you look at some of the Facebook pages where it feels like, you know, the business is posting promos and that's just about all that they do on the page. So someone might like a page but they never ever really go back to it. So, I mean, we try and build up a bit more of a community there. We do fun stuff. I mean, whenever we send out our emails and things like that, it's all signed off around the web kitten. The web kitten is kind of like, the person who's running the show at, at Planet 13. So we have a bit of fun and post some, you know, cat photos and, you know, if it's a hot day or something like that, we'll have a, a cat sitting in a pool or something like that. And it kind of just it, it, it flows into this brand of, of uh, and this web kitten is almost like having a little bit of a personality. It's a bit of fun, gets a little bit of engagement and we'll mix that up with posting, you know, hey, Guns N' Roses is about to tour, tour here in Australia or hey, did anyone go to the Motley Crue concert the other night? So it's it's more around engaging the community and having that discussion with them and as a byproduct, the, the Planet 13 brand gets mentioned. Um, as far as like quantifying some sort of ROI for the time and effort spent on it, I mean, don't have any sort of real hard numbers on that. I mean, we can look inside the organic, uh, inside Google Analytics and see the referring traffic from Facebook and, and it's there. Uh, but I suppose the big focus for us uh, with that is more of an engagement thing and ha- having a place where we can sort of 
have that discussion and get that feedback. I mean, we were all talking about, I think at the start of this call, you and I were talking about this idea of understanding your target market and traditionally you'd have a retail store and you could maybe get that one-on-one feedback. How do you get that feedback in the online world? Facebook is one of the ways to do that. Yeah, you just started a discussion on, oh, what did you listen to last week? Kind of just to throw things out there and sort of saying, hey, buy now, buy now, buy now. And then people just unlike your page, basically. Yeah, yep, yeah, spot exactly. on. Interesting. All right. And so I guess you, you have an SEO background too, right? So kind of, uh, I've had an SEO guy on my show before. So how has that helped you in terms of kind of with the product uh, merchandising and kind of all that stuff? Because I guess, like I look at your product categories, they're like band t-shirts, band t-women. So I guess when someone searches, say, uh, you know, uh, Motley Crew band t-shirt Australia, that's something you guys would target? or Yeah, that's that, that's the type of longer tail stuff that we do. And um, as the profile of the sites uh, built up over years, I mean, we can go for some of the more competitive shorter tail phrases as well, whether it's, you know, band name merch, um, those types of things. But as far as the way to do SEO, uh, for your on-page optimization, it's, it's really about... For each page, you probably want to target one primary keyword and maybe one or two variations of that primary keyword and then you just put it in the, the places that, um, I mean, this is, this is sort of SEO 101, you pop it into your title tag, your meta description a couple of times throughout the page um, and the way search engines work, it's all about uh, linking to pages that you want to have ranked. So once you sort of start to understand uh, which pages in your site are working best for you and converting, you've set up some Google Analytics and some um, goal tracking and things like that, you can start to determine which which keywords are making you money, then you can kind of just make sure that you start linking to those to help moving them higher up in the search engines as well. So it's good if, for an e-commerce site as well as you're loading up products. I mean, if you, if you can come up with a bit more of an automated way that title tags and descriptions uh, are written rather than having to manually do it. I mean, that's good, um, but it really depends on the volume of products you've got. Um, you know, for example, I mean, a title, you could effectively, you're going to be entering in the product name, you're going to be entering in a category, you've got a few things like that, and you'll probably have a description. You can pull some of that data from within your your database and use that to help pre-populate some of those, you know, areas I was talking about, the title tags and the descriptions. So you can almost create a bit more of an automated way and you might set that up as your your default title tag and description and then should you want to go back and customise it, then you, you have the ability to go in there and, and tweak those. Definitely want to be doing, uh, I mean, this is, again, probably e-commerce 101 and uh, you want to make sure that you've got unique descriptions for all of your different products. You don't want to be copying any sort of manufacturer's descriptions or descriptions where there's going to be 10 other people uh, or with exactly the same one. I mean, that's not a very good quality signal to Google. So you want to try and have those custom things. Yeah. And so I look at, I'm looking at your pages, for example, like a bad religion hoodies. You guys actually have that in the title. And then in the description, there's the keyword bad religion hoodies. And I guess so, so I guess, did you guys manually write like 8,000 product descriptions or how did, how did that come about? So a good combination of that, some of that automated stuff I was talking about, uh, also some custom written stuff. So this is a how do you eat an elephant 
one bite at a time. Uh, it's a big project and a big undertaking uh, to see what we've built up now and then think, oh, wow, to, you know, to get to that level, I have to do all of these things. I would just start off with the smallest possible piece first, uploading a few products, uh, figure out what that first little element that's working, that minimum viable product, you want to get to that point. So then you go, ah, oh, this is working and then you can kind of roll out from there. Business is hard work. Um, and, and particularly at the start, the first couple of stages as you're moving through as an entrepreneur, you are burning the candle at both ends. You're putting a lot of work in and not necessarily getting well rewarded for your time. If you multiply it out on a per hourly basis, you, you're probably going to get better money uh, going working a nine to five. But it's really the, the longer term payoff that you're looking for once you sort of build up that momentum. I think that's why I love e-commerce so much is because of the scalability uh, and obviously, it's got very low overheads. That's one of the reasons uh, we ended up shifting out of the uh, retail stores because we were at a crossroads. We were about to roll out all of the uh, franchised stores, the real world stores. And then uh, it was almost like that thing I was talking about earlier of uh, all boats float on a rising tide and they also sink on a falling tide as well. So we saw the retail space as getting hit pretty hard. A lot of the retail stores in the retail sector was getting hit hard, uh, yet our online stuff was doing quite well, much lower overheads, larger potential market that we could hit because you're not sort of bound by any geographic boundaries. Um, so that's kind of when we decided to, to double down and go you know, all in, in on that. Yeah, that's the one thing about e-commerce is that if you take a long-term view versus like I guess a couple of years ago, the popular thing online was to make these little niche sites, right? Like five, six pages of content, very thin, but then you use AdSense and you kind of like just keyword stuffed it. So where it's kind of like with e-commerce, you know, the I guess the SEO you invent, invest in today, it'll still be there mm-hmm. you know, kind of two, three years down the road as everything snowballs too. And then that kind of becomes a barrier to entry too, right? From yeah. anyone that's trying to jump in the market. So. I mean, you touched on an important point there, and this is just a shift. It used to work incredibly well. You could get some quick and easy rankings just by having a very keyword rich domain name. And that was one of the reasons why a lot of people were doing these mini sites because you wouldn't really have to do very much to get a website to rank if it if it had a keyword that you were looking to rank for. So a lot of people started setting up all of these mini sites. And I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. I registered over 600 different domain names on all of these obscure different niches, everything from ballet dancing to roller skating to um, cooking to all, all of these different things. And I put public domain works up on them and um, I was going for that AdSense play. Uh, and it, it did. It worked incredibly well. Um, there, for, there are a few reasons that you know, I didn't run too hard with that model. But now, fast forward five, six years now, and, and, and you have a look at where the space is at now. Google's come out just recently with their EMD uh, update, the exact match domain name update. And the preference that a lot of those domain names with the keyword in them uh, is getting taken away. And it's about building up the authority. And the, the problem is if you and this is a, an entrepreneurial thing where usually a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong, especially in that first stage. They think about trying to have all of these different projects on the go 
but it means they end up doing not one thing very well because they've split themselves over so many different levels. And the same with uh, search and building an online business. If, if you try and build up lots of different mini sites, particularly now after that update, you need to invest a certain amount of SEO into those sites now to, to get them to rank uh, and still sort of turn a profit for you. And if you're dividing that energy up across, you know, 10 different websites, game's changed now. You're, you'd be much better off picking the one product that's got the best chance of success or that one website that's got the best legs. Um, and once you've proven you've got a real minimum viable product there, and that's once you get to that proof of concept stage, then you should really focus and channel your energies into that. So rather than having tons of little mini sites, you you focus on the one and you just do good, solid, long-lasting SEO that's going to stand the test of time rather than building these little promotion-based websites that might just die off as soon as Google sneezes and changes its algorithm. Yeah, and you really see that now. It's really about building like a strong brand, strong authority website now too versus, you know, building 10 niche sites. And kind of the other topic I want to bring up is that, you know, if you have 10 websites that each make $100 a month, and there's just one that makes a thousand. If you make one of those ten websites increase by twenty percent, you've really only grown the business by like two percent. Whereas if you had one website growing by twenty percent, it's like two hundred dollars, right? So yeah, and you sort of um, reminded me of something. Of this. I mean, this a lot of this comes from my stock market education background. Uh, but there's this saying, this idea that again, going back to that, all fo- boats float on a rising tide. So when we had the stock market boom. Uh, and the internet bubble sort of uh, early 2000s, um, late late 90s, very late 90s. You could buy anything that ended in a dot-com and you, you'd make money. Buy it on Monday morning and then by the end of the week you doubled your money because the internet boom was happening, everybody was piling into the stock market. You were sitting in a cab and you were probably getting tips from the cab driver about what the, the latest stock was that he bought. Now, in a rising market like that, a heavy rising market, people have a tendency to mistake where they are and the success they're having with some sort of skill that they think is theirs. So they'll sit there and go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a stock market genius. I'm a stock market wizard here. Uh, it's not until the market comes off the other side that uh, it really sorts the, the men from the boys and those who... Um, knew what they were doing from those who don't. And they say, uh, on a rising tide, it's not until uh, the tide goes out that you realise who's swimming naked. Now, if you think about that with the um, online space, we were having the heyday online. I mean, if you go back sort of 10, 10 years um, to the early days of, or at least when I was sort of getting interested in the online stuff, you didn't have to do too much and you could uh, make some really good money. A lot of people, again, they were, they were getting this false sense of, hey, I'm, I'm a genius because they were getting all of this organic, you know, free, quote unquote, organic traffic from Google. And it's not until that traffic disappeared that we're now realizing who actually has a business and who doesn't have a business. And online is getting more and more competitive. And now you, you need to it's about building a business and having all of those solid business fundamentals. So, I mean, I feel quite fortunate with a lot of what we did with the offline world now. I'm able to bring a lot of those skills that I 
with a lot of actually running a business where, you know, you have to watch your overheads and you have to make sure your margins are right and, you know, you need to be making sure that you're looking at um, net not gross all the time and uh, a lot of different business things. And that's where we're seeing a lot of people now. They're kind of like, oh, wow, this, this online thing isn't as easy as, you know, it was originally made out to be. I can't just sit on the beach and have, you know, money getting deposited in, into my bank account while I'm uh, sipping a pina colada. Yeah, and it's like the whole... Uh, kind of like your net margins, learning how to what cash flow is, all that stuff. A lot of people don't just kind of jump into this. They're like, "Oh my god, I made, you know, ten thousand dollars last month," but they don't realize they've spent nine thousand in expenses. And then yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's that comes down to getting that minimum viable product, which is key. You want to, in those early stages, plan out your your numbers because oftentimes there's exceptions to the rule. But as a general rule, if it doesn't work on a small scale it oftentimes won't work on a large scale. So you test it small, make sure those numbers work because larger numbers is just going to magnify whatever result that you're getting. So if you're losing money on this proposition, it doesn't quite stack up, funneling a whole lot of extra cash into it or trying to magnify that result by bringing in a whole lot more sales, all it's going to do is magnify that result that you're getting so if you're losing money or the numbers don't quite stack up just selling more products trying to go for gross sales might not necessarily be the answer you might be losing money even quicker now so you need to make sure that those those numbers stack up up front now i mean there's a couple of exceptions to the rule they're very rare like your walmarts i mean they're that's a game of of scale and they get really big breaks when they're working um, with such large volumes, but as a general rule, and for most people, it's just smarter to think you need to make it work on a small scale, make sure that those numbers stack up first before you really look at ramping it up. Yeah, and I think the nice thing when you're starting out is that, you know, you can look at a business that has, say, you know, only 10% margin and say, hey, this is not something I want to get into, right? You can kind of keep looking for something until you find the right match yeah, and kind of choose without, you know, being stuck in some bad industry, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, so, and it's always better not to be positioning yourself as a commodity and something that can be compared on uh, just based on price. And I know it's harder in the e-com world, definitely, I mean, we do some service-based stuff as well. It's much easier in the service-based industry to position a premium product and charge a premium price, and that gives yourself a little bit more margin for error. That's what I like. If you're selling something and you've got a higher profit margin, that means you can make more mistakes and it still works out for you. So having that high margin is good. Um, In e-commerce space, it's a little bit different because, I mean, if you price yourself too high, then if, if people are shopping based on, on price, it's very easy to compare. Like what's what's the difference between this ACDC T-shirt and this ACDC T-shirt over here? They're the same product. So really they should be similar pricing. And that's when you get to, you know, next level type stuff where you start to think about matrix pricing, which is kind of like what something like Officeworks, which is a big office supply chain here in Australia does. They're very competitive on certain lines that are easily comparable. So if you go and look at a ream of paper, they're very, very competitive. In fact, they might even sell it at a slight loss to get people in the, the front door as a loss leader. Uh, and But where they make their money is on some of the lines that they manufacture and some of the other things that aren't as easily comparable. And then their margins uh, are um, much better on those items. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other counter argument is that, you know, if you have a product that's so unique that there's no comparison, then you can also charge higher too but that's kind of in a different realm of actually finding a product idea too yeah i think you know you i mean these are all these 
businessy type questions that you think about right up up front and and where a lot of people go wrong is not putting enough thought up to that up front i mean it, it depends where you're at there's a lot of hurdles and roadblocks in growing a business uh, and some people are stronger in other areas some people are really good at coming up with the ideas some people are really good at um, executing on those ideas some people are really good at uh, building a team uh, and oftentimes you'll see certain entrepreneurs they'll grow faster through certain stages so some people you know might take really a long time in stage one or two is they're getting that minimum viable product and they're getting cash flow but then they might move quicker through one of the later stages when you need to start to scale things because maybe they've had experience in the corporate world or something like that so they've got those skills and and vice versa someone else might move quickly through stages one and two but then sort of slow down when they get to stage uh, three, uh, because they, they haven't got those those learnings. So everybody's at a, at a different place. You kind of need a – the real key and the, the secret for growing a business is identifying where you are uh, and understanding what hurdles you're coming up against and being able to answer those those questions. That, that's really the, the key, identifying where you are right now and getting the answers for, for where you are right now because the answer you might give to someone um, – could be a very different answer or, or different solution for someone else, um, depending on where they're at in kind of the stage of growing a business. Yeah, and because no one will ever have the same exact situation or you'll never find the same exact case study that matches your situation. Yeah. Too, and it's just the nature of the world, right? So. Well, <laughs> when building a business, and again, this is where uh, a lot of people go wrong, they'll they're following, you know, they might see some guru, quote unquote, who's who's preaching a particular method on how to build their own, build up their business. And they might have had a huge success and made it work really well for them. And then they're selling that idea to other people. Now, other people, they might buy into their program or course or whatever and then try and apply it in their own business. And, and what where a lot of entrepreneurs go wrong is for whatever reason, they'll just follow that system blindly and let's say they don't end up getting the success that they were hoping for. It's too easy for them then to just go, oh, um, you know, the reason it didn't work was because this course, you know, doesn't work. The system doesn't work. It's the system's fault. And they don't actually take ownership. Really what you want to be doing is, like, like you said, there's, there's no one way to do it. The best thing that you can do is if you're buying these courses is modify it slightly, make it your own. Everybody comes up with their own plan and their own methodology in the way that they do things. So that way as well, if you tweak it, then if it doesn't quite go to plan, you have to take ownership of that. And the reason it worked is maybe something that you didn't do or you need to try and tweak something or you need to do something slightly differently. There's, there's, there's real power that comes from defining and creating your own methodology and not just blindly following something else because everybody's journey is different. There's a few bits that are similar and, and similar roadblocks that you come up against, but there's, you know, everybody's a little bit different on the way they solve those. Yeah, exactly. All right. And so let's move on to e-commerce platform a little bit. Which platform are you guys on right now on the, for Planet 13? Well, we're still on that custom platform. So we had that, that coder that um, we picked up in Slovakia and um, had been working with him for a really long time. And we've stayed on that partly because at the time there was just, nothing else that was out there that had the requirements that I was after. And I was really specific uh, in, in what we were wanting to do. But there's, there's definitely a few issues with going down that path. It's great because it's flexible. And if, I'm, if I've got an idea, 
uh, I can chat with my programmer and, and get those things implemented. At the moment, we're, we're actually running the, the actual website is separate from like the shopping cart component, which makes it a little bit awkward because we're, it's almost like we're running two databases for, for products and things like that. So there's a bit of double handling there. And at some point we should migrate over, but we just, we just haven't got around to it. There's, there's just a big long to-do list of things to do. Um, but we're kind of running them separate. We run it off. The actual shopping cart is, is run off number one shopping cart of all things. Now, I'm, I'm by no means uh, recommending that people build an e-commerce platform using that. I mean, there's a lot of other solutions that are quite quite good now. And re-looking at it, I mean, we're going back now and I'm, I'm looking to build out another e-commerce project. Um, and we are looking at some of the platforms out there. And Hey, do we go for this? Some of those considerations are, do you go for something like Magento, which is great because it's got a good community base. Uh, it's open source. People are developing. Uh, it also has its drawbacks as well. There's sort of limitations. The, the coding, the way that it's done, it's quite can be quite clunky. Uh, on certain servers, it can run a little bit slowly. There's a few little hurdles that you come up against. And then the flip side is, and there's a bit more customization. It's going to take work to try and get it and maintain it. Then, or do you go a slightly easier route and go for something like a big commerce or um, one of these out-of-the-box platforms and you, you give up a bit of the flexibility uh, in exchange for, hey, it's all done for you. Because I have specific requirements for what I want it to do, we'll most likely go down the Magento path because either that or our own sort of custom coding thing, we're gonna, it's going to be down that path, I'd imagine, uh, as opposed to something out of the box. But if you're just new and you're just starting out, um, sometimes going for some one of those other platforms is just easier because then you don't have to focus so much on the technical thing. It's, it's too easy to get caught when you're building a website. It's too easy to get caught in all the minutiae of just getting stuff done uh, and it, it can stop you and slow you down. But I'm, I'm in a fortunate position now where we've, you know, we've had some good successes. We've built up a bit of a team and now I've got some people that can help execute. So actually, I'm just thinking through it out loud now. If, if I was starting out right now, and I didn't have that team, then I would go down the out-of-the-box type solution like, like I said, like a big commerce or something. Um, or if I had a bit of a team, then I'd probably go more down the custom and go for something like Magento. Yeah, so, so, so I guess the one thing you have to look forward to is when you migrate uh, to a new platform, do you have to do like the redirects for all of that, for all your products? Or <laughs> yeah. 8,000 products? Yeah, yeah so yeah, this is... And this is one of the reasons probably why we've been holding off. When it's easy in, very difficult out when it comes with shopping carts. So shopping carts will give you the, the 30 days free trial because they want to get you in there and get you using the platform uh, because they know once you really get invested to it, uh, it's actually difficult to move. Moving platforms, uh, at least if you've done any SEO work um, and you've got a lot of products, it's easier with the smaller site. Once you sort of start getting a larger number of products and different URLs, you, ultimately you want to try and keep the same URL structure because that's what Google indexes. And uh, assuming that you set up your categories correctly and they're search engine friendly and things like that, and you've got the keywords in there, you, you, you really want to keep that same URL structure if uh, otherwise, you know, people are going to be finding things in the, the search engines and they'll click on it and they'll go to a 404 page because you've set up this new website. So, you know, in an ideal world, go through and uh, completely redirect all of your old pages and URLs through to the new one 
Or if you can keep the same URL structure, then obviously you don't need to do that. Um, uh, or if you know, you're being a bit lazy, you might just say anytime someone requests a page that isn't there, then redirect them through to the home page. But then there's a little bit of a disconnect from the user if they click something in search engines that says a particular product name and then they get there and they get redirected through to the home page. That's obviously going to increase bounce rate. So there's probably actually a few considerations you need to go through and then think about the best way to migrate. And I mean, at that point, that's probably when you try and chat with an SEO company or an SEO person just go, all right, we're looking to migrate here. What are the best steps to do or take? All right. And so outside of kind of like your standard Google Analytics, your software, is there, are there any special tools that you use that you would recommend? Sometimes tools overcomplicate things. And, and again, this is coming from my stock market education background. A lot of people, when they were analyzing, you know, which stock do I get into, they'd be applying all of these different indicators and um, different ways to try and predict or determine what price is going to do. And, and really all of those indicators, all, of they, were, all they were really doing was uh, interpreting the underlying fundamental data, which was the open, high, low, close and volume. You know, you might as well just look, go to the source. Although there are some tools that I recommend, the source data for most of these tools, from, from an SEO point of view, I think getting up uh, webmaster tools, Google Analytics, that's, those two are key. You might get some sort of backlink analysis tool like Majestic SEO, um, but you can get away with the data that you'll get out of Google Webmaster Tools. I mean, one of the biggest ones is uh, that, that search that happens on your site. You really need to be knowing what people are searching on your site. That's, that's another big indicator. Um, I mean, I, I use some different tools like Market Samurai um, for, for some keyword research and, and um, SEO competition stuff and some of our keyword tracking. Uh, I mean, they recently had a really cool uh, video, they called it paycheck keywords or something like that. Uh, and it talked about how to set up goals in your Google Analytics uh, and then find out which keywords are driving you the most amount of cash and then grabbing those keywords and dropping them into their rank tracker so you can keep an eye on keywords that are making you money to make sure that you know they're not dropping away and doing all you can to make sure that you move them up the search engine. So Market Samurai, yeah, that's probably a good tool. I mean, I, I use some other ones as well. SEM Rush is another good one for some um, keyword competitive stuff to see what new competitions are up to and, and see what keywords they're bidding on uh, for paid search and things like that. I mean, there are a few ones off the top of my head, but I, I try and not get too caught up in tools. Sometimes someone... When they're just getting started out, they feel like, hey, I have to subscribe to these six different services. And then, you know, each month it's just sucking down all of this cash out of their, their account when really they should be reinvesting that money back into whether it's getting another team member or something like that uh, to help grow the business as opposed to all of these tools. So I start off with the bare minimum. I mean, you can do some pretty good damage with Market Samurai, Google Analytics, Google Webmaster Tools. Um, and even the Google free keyword tool, that, that's a good place to start. And then you can layer on some of those other ones I mentioned as you sort of start to grow, maybe some uh, Majestic, some SEM Rush um, as, you, as you sort of start to get going. Yeah, because these monthly services, they look cheap, but they add up really quick, like $20 here, $30 there, $70 here. It can really eat into your margins very quick when you're starting out too. It's software as a service now. I mean, that's a huge industry that's just exploding right now. And um, web developers and programmers and things like that are thinking, hey, why create a standalone product where people pay a once-off fee when I'll sell it for a lower price, but I'll make it monthly. So instead of having a one-off price, then 
you know, they end up getting someone into this continuity program and then they keep getting paid. So it makes sense for them and encourages them to keep improving and, and developing it. But, yeah, very quickly um, those expenses add up. And this goes back to the whole Planet 13 days um, of, of the offline world. Uh, managing your numbers is, is really where it's at. And this, that what I was talking about, sorting, uh, sorting the, the men from the boys, you need to learn how to read numbers. Uh, you need to understand... Uh, how to read a profit and loss sheet, how to keep an eye on cash flow as you're traveling through the months. I mean, a great tool we've been using and, and something called Xero, so xero.com, and it takes a lot of your bank feeds and pulls it into this central database and then you can reconcile, you know, it's for all of your accounting stuff. It's online in the cloud accounting uh, and stuff like that, um, which gives you great visibility. That's the, the software as a service you should be signing up for if because that's, that's that's business type stuff. That's not real, you know, just tools looking at keywords. That's that's the real core drivers. Yeah, interesting. All right, and so let's just wrap things up a little bit. So, kind of, what's the biggest lesson you've learned so far running the offline and online store uh, throughout all these years? We kind of touched on that holy that whole idea of the holy grail. People would go searching for in the stock market. They'd look for the perfect system that would get them into the stock at the lowest possible price and would tell them when to sell at the highest possible price and get them out and they would make maximum profits. And, and the new trader, when they come into the market, goes searching for this. They call it, you know, the holy grail of the trading systems. And all new traders go through it and that's when they start looking at all of these different indicators and tools and um, they, they think that the indicator or the tool is going to be the thing that gives them the secret to success and unlocks profits. Link that over to the um, building a business and thinking e-commerce, um, there is no one method for doing it. You need to find a few different people that resonate with you, like choose one or two people that, hey, their, their content really resonates with me or I like their methodology um, and tune out to everything else, focus into those one or two people uh, and then consume everything that you can from them and then take the content and make it your own. So that way you really take that ownership. Start to implement it and, and try and go through the different uh, stages. You know, you need to crawl first before you really start running. So firstly, get a minimum viable product up and running, get some cash flow going, get some clients through the door and collect some proof and, you know, get some raving fans and then start to build a team, you help to create some systems and automate the process and, and work up that ladder. You, you need to get the skills at each level to help grow that business. Don't just sort of jump straight into it and you listen to a podcast about building a team in the Philippines and think, oh, that's the answer. I'm going to go hire six people over in the Philippines when you haven't first figured out exactly what you're going to sell and if the numbers stack up. So having, having that, that process, being comfortable with where you are and thinking about what do I need to grow through to that next stage is important. And then, yeah, once, once you sort of get things, I mean, I'm, I'm a big systems guy, um, uh, or documenting everything that you do is key. You know, recording, uh, any time that you do anything, you really should record it. Uh, even when you're a one-man band and you don't have a team yet, if you're uploading products to your website, record a short video of you uploading a product to your website. If you're tweaking the SEO, if you're importing a, a data feed into zero or reconciling a bank account or anything, just become a maniac for recording. Record everything that you do. Develop your own way that you catalog and store this. You might do it in a Dropbox or something like that. And that 
becomes sort of the foundations as you start to grow. You can use that to help guide other team members as they step in behind you as you sort of start to get busy and you can't get things done. At that point, you've already documented a lot of your processes. So I think the, the best thing I can recommend, the biggest breakthrough people will have is if they just start documenting what they're doing and or recording. Even documenting makes it sound like more difficult than it needs to be. Just turn a screen capture software on Jing or Camtasia or ScreenFlow, depending on whatever platform you're on, and just start recording what you're doing. Um, that's, that's time well spent. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because it's kind of the documentation you can give off to like a VA that then he just watches a video and then he figures it out on their own instead of then writing an SOP on your own, figuring out how you did this, how you did that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's really smart. Yeah, all right. And so where can we find uh, you online and Planet 13? Um, I mean, the main stuff, I, I, I do use planet13.com.au. Uh, the, like there's a little bit of a case study, but I mean, all of my main core work and energies and stuff are being funneled into Melbourne SEO services at the moment. So it's Melbourne, M-E-L-B-O-U-R-N-E. SEOservices.com. We've built up a um, full service uh, agency almost when it comes to online marketing, SEO, and put a lot of good free YouTube videos out there and free reports and all that type of stuff. And and basically, the, the reason I do that is I use that, again, I, I eat my own dog food. I, I practice what I preach is I'm documenting our processes on the way that we do things. And then that ends up actually being my team training. When I run little workshops and things about SEO or outsourcing or some of these things, we, we run it internally to, to create that team training and then it sort of becomes a product and that's kind of where I'm focusing a lot of my energy now uh, is building up Melbourne SEO services. So I've got this real crack team of people that we can apply to any project. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur at heart just like you, Terry, and um, we've got different projects that we do outside of client work and it's almost like we can build up the team and get paid for it by working on clients' stuff and, and you know, quickly skill up our team quickly, but then we get to funnel that back into our own project. So um, if someone's thinking about their own business, that's a good thought to think about. How can you get cash flow quickly? Maybe it is. It might not be starting out with um, an e-commerce style site. You might start off trying to just do a service. You are trading time for dollars just to get the money in the door, build up the skills and getting paid for it. And then you kind of leverage that into your own side project. Yeah, that's smart. You have a team that's getting trained under someone else's dime, building their skills, and then you can apply them to your other projects too. That's actually really smart. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, on. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, uh, thanks so much, Dave. I think we've gone over like probably an hour and a half almost. So <laughs> I'll let you let you get going now. And then, uh, all right, well, thanks so much. And uh, good luck for your class later. And uh, we'll just see you in touch. Yeah, cool. All right, thanks, Dave. All right, take care, Dave. Yeah, bye. Goodbye. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store Podcast.